Now, hey, this is Kurt Opsel the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and you're listening to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. And today we have episode 290 for September 19th, 2022. Now, this was pre-recorded, so if there's any major cybersecurity or privacy news items that I'm failing to mention here, the reason is I'm on vacation. Now, I'll be coming back probably about the time you hear this, and this is one of the reasons why I did two interview shows back-to-back, because I knew I wasn't going to have time to do a full news show before I left. But today we have another interview, and this is with Kurt Opsahl from EFF. He's a really cool guy that I actually met in person at DEF CON and didn't realize until we did the interview that that was who I had met. So that was kind of interesting. But I reached out to him because the EFF had recently published an article about this group slash software product called Tornado Cash. And Tornado Cash is a cryptocurrency mixer. And we're going to find out what all that means today. And the reason I wanted to talk about it, first of all, it's because it, it was in the news and it was kind of interesting. And it, cryptocurrency is always a fascinating subject, but there are free speech issues around what happened with Tornado Cash. And it's around software code as speech and something that I don't think we often think about. So I thought this would be a good opportunity to do that and also to learn what a cryptocurrency mixer is and why cryptocurrency isn't always as private as it should be and how things like mixers can improve your privacy and anonymity when it comes to dealing in cryptocurrency. And then also just to learn some more about our rights here in the United States for free speech and how they function and how they don't. The, you know, free speech isn't completely 100% free. There are, things, there are things you can do that are not covered under the First Amendment. So we're going to talk a little bit about that, the history behind that, what is and is not covered, and what is going on here with this particular situation with this cryptocurrency mixing software. So I'm not going to lie, this is legal stuff. We are going to get, in some cases, kind of deep into some of the legal aspects of this. But I think it's good for all of us to understand how this stuff works. And along the way, we'll, we'll talk about a couple of interesting stories that have to do with free speech and code and copyright and, 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 and things of that nature. All right, so let's get right to our interview with Kurt Opsahl from EFF. Kurt Opsahl is the Deputy Executive Director and General Counsel for the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the leading nonprofit defending digital privacy, free speech, and innovation. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on the show, Kurt. Uh, Pleasure to be here. So you recently wrote an article on behalf of EFF about uh, a topic that has a lot of really kind of esoteric and interesting angles, not only from a technology standpoint, but in this case, a legal standpoint. And I, I've been kind of wanting to dig into this, and, and I saw the article, and I thought this would be a great person to talk to. So I'm glad you came on the show. Uh, but we're, we're going to have to build up a couple of basics, uh, a little bit of foundation here before we can get into the meat of this. So uh, if you would, at a high level, just kind of explain, first of all, we, um, the audience knows what cryptocurrency is, but the anonymity aspect, the privacy aspect of cryptocurrency transactions, I think is is widely misunderstood. A lot of people just assume it's a completely anonymous way to uh, give somebody money or send money or to somebody, but that's not really true. So, just at a high level, explain how that how transaction privacy varies, maybe depending on the type, because there's multiple types of cryptocurrency, and and then how you shift that around, how you spend it or exchange it, that can affect your your, your privacy and your an- anonymity. 
Sure, sure. I, I think this is this is a you know it is very common misconception on on cryptocurrencies in particular, Bitcoin and Ethereum, the two most popular uh, cryptocurrencies, uh, and, and later we're going to be talking for more specifically about Ethereum. But what it allows is for people to have a wallet, and the wallet will have a number. It's a very long string uh, that that. You know, specifically identifies a wallet and then you can transfer uh coins uh from one wallet to another wallet now in you know with the ordinary uh, course of things where it's very you know as a lay person you could see this string this wallet and not know who it is so this may give people sort of an impression that this is at least pseudonymous but as a starting point all the transactions are listed in a, a blockchain a ledger that is designed to be a immutable database, an immutable set of data that lists all the transactions, which wallets transferred assets to which other wallets. And so the, the key thing that, that uh, could potentially break the potential privacy that you have is if your wallet gets associated with you as a person. And for many people, you know, they use like Coinbase or some other, you know, exchange like the exchange knows who they are. If you purchase something with that wallet and, you know, had a, something shipped to your address right now, that wallet is associated with your name. And once a wallet is associated with your name, then someone can go back through all of the transactions that you've ever done and sort of get your complete history based on that, that wallet information, which means that actually a pretty public form of, of transaction uh, unless you take some special steps to to try to make it more protective right and and the coinbase thing is a big one because a lot of these companies are what we call kyc or know your customer organizations where they go through the process of making sure they know exactly who you are in fact i think even from i don't know if this is driven by financial regulations or if it's just mimicking bank financial regulations that often do this but they because they want to know if you're shifting money around because you might be doing it for illicit purposes they want to be able to track you on this in this way and i i think it's actually odd how coinbase and some of these other companies go out of their way to know your customer for a type of transaction that most people believe is private I think that, uh, you know, the, the KYC or know your customer rules, those are coming from financial regulations designed to create some records that can be used for later, later investigations or to enforce uh, sanctions or money laundering, anti-AML, sometimes it's called anti-money laundering efforts. And so the, the largest exchanges will engage in this uh, KYC AML record keeping and so often if you sign up you know they ask for a picture of your driver's license they you know send in some documentation and such that is you know pretty good at identifying who the person is and then later someone could try and get those records to to find out who was associated with that account and then there might be some wallets that are associated with that account so so tying those, those things together you know, you can also do a wallet to wallet transfer, right? You don't have to use an exchange, but certainly by and large, most people are doing their their cryptocurrency transactions facilitated by uh, an exchange. All right. So that brings us to the next layer of the foundation that we're building here. And that is this notion of a cryptocurrency mixer. Given everything we just discussed, what is a what is a cryptocurrency mixer and why would I use such a thing? 
So uh, at sort of the the highest level, uh, and I should say, I'm I'm a, I'm a lawyer and a technologist. So you know, bear, bear with me on on these explanations. And I also actually refer an organization known as Coin Center wrote up a explainer on how Tornado Cash work that goes into glorious detail hmm. that can really, uh, drill down on this. But it's sort of at a, at a high level, what a mixer does is it, it has a, a a pool, and you put some coins into that pool. And you get the right to take some the, the same amount of coins out of the pool. But it wouldn't necessarily be that your wallet that puts it in is connected to the wallet that takes it out. For example, you know, let's say there's 20 uh, wallets in this pool. You might put the coins into wallet number one and take them out of wallet number 20. And thus not having that, uh, you know, breaking that chain of, of transactions. And the idea, at least behind these, is to add back this anonymity, pseudonymity feature that people had hoped would be in Bitcoin and Ethereum, but wasn't actually there. And, you know, in the, the original paper that, that uh, uh, Satoshi uh, uh, wrote about Bitcoin, you know, he said this was going to be a property of it that give you some pseudonymity. But like that didn't really work out. And I think one of the things that you know makes it so that there's so much privacy issues surrounding using these things is the ability of computers to trace through transactions and follow wallet transfer to wallet transfer and so on. It's just gotten easier to to mine through that data at, at a level that that maybe not was not anticipated originally. And also the you know the, as the value of these cryptocurrencies skyrocketed and it's gone down a little bit recently but still way way higher than it was in the, in the beginning like that that creates an interest to to put in the effort to do this so these these mixers were trying to add back in that privacy or maybe even add it in the first place for real that that would make it difficult to do this chaining so that you know you still might know some information about like this wallet got x number of coins but you wouldn't necessarily be able to take that and trace back the entire history of someone's transactions or, or, or sort of, you know, see where it's coming from. So, you know, this is a very useful thing for, for adding some privacy and the, you know, the, the potential for having your, your life exposed in this way. But, you know, also, uh, you know, the, the concerns raised is that, you know, people might use this for nefarious purposes to, to, to hide a, hide a transaction. And I think, you know, the intent behind it was to, you know, provide, provide strong privacy, but, you know, with many technologies, this also could be used for, you know, hiding something in a, in a more negative way. We've certainly seen many cases where privacy has caused a lot of grief for law enforcement and, and they've talked about going dark for several years now. There were the crypto wars back in the nineties, and this has been a constant tension between privacy and law enforcement wanting to be able to go wherever they feel they need to go to trace something down, which will be a theme I'm sure throughout this entire conversation. A absolutely. And I, I would say that like, I think that the law enforcement is currently in a golden age of surveillance. The amount of capacity that they have to surveil and get record keeping about transactions is is higher than it has ever been. But of course, they still complain about not having it all. And right. that, uh, you know, while you, you mentioned the crypto wars, I would say they're still ongoing. That is to mm. say that, that uh, you know, we do have strong encryption like that. That is the positive side. But it's not for lack of trying of the uh, various governments to ask for back doors or, you know, uh, they, they don't call it back doors anymore. They right. realize that bad term. But uh, they'll say, we, we just want plain text access. You can have all the encryption you want so long as we can get the plain text. Right. And, you know, this this is a tension. But also, to, you know, to 
put some of these things in, in perspective, like consider cash. Cash can can go go around, and you can you can spend it and such without um, you know if it's less than ten thousand dollars, you don't have to fill out paperwork around it. And then if you take it to the bank, it's over ten thousand dollars. Then you know you, you you do, but there is a this this margin where you can have a lot of ordinary transactions that that uh, uh, will not have the same kind of permanent permanent record, and that is you know a nice a nice thing for for society. But uh, be that be that as as it may, I think you're right that there there is that that uh, that tension, and you know people we don't want to have money laundering, we don't want to have you know ransomware be able to be successful and, and get their to get their money out. Like there are there are good reasons for it. So you know how do we how do we try and get these privacy properties and uh, not give up our, our civil liberties while having effective uh, tools. That is that is like a societal tension. Yeah, I think the funny thing you brought up cash, and I think it's so funny because people talk about cash being the ultimate, you know, untraceable source. But the funny thing is, is they're also pseudonymous. Every bill has a serial number, which is why in the classic, you know, the old crime shows, you know, the cops like, you know, I want to, I want a two million dollars in unmarked bills or, or you know, unsequential serial numbers on the bills and things like that because those serial numbers. It's you know, funny enough, cash actually has serial numbers on it too, which is. A- absolutely, and you know the non-sequential, right? That that is that is a, a a reference to at least at some point it was somewhat hard to check all the serial numbers, and so it was easier if you gave someone a second. You say, "Oh, this whole sequence is is bad," and certainly, you know, if you if you uh, steal money from a bank, for example, they they may have some some knowledge of what those uh, things and look for them later. But you know, uh, if you if you take cash with its serial number, and you you know you hand it to a friend, and then they you know tip a, a server, and then that server give it to their friend, like each of those steps along the way, there's no reporting back what happened with that that serial number. So when it eventually you know goes to a business that deposited in their bank, and they you know uh, look at the serial number again, you can know the beginning and end of that chain, but not all the steps along the way, right? And in some sense, like that is what a mixer does. I was going right? to just say, yes, oh. like a cash mixer. Yeah. Okay, so in December 20, uh, 2016, the White House under Barack Obama at the time instituted Executive Order 13964. Uh, what was the purpose of this order and, and how has it been used prior to the case that we're about to discuss? Well, so this this is a, you know, an executive order that Obama issued to address uh, blocking the property of certain persons engaged in significant malicious cyber-enabled activities, is its formal name, and uh, it was using some of the the authority that uh, the president had through uh, some statutes, the International Emergency Economic Powers Act or IEPA, and this is this is a executive order that's trying to sort of effectuate that and it gives a, a methodology to cause uh, economic sanctions it's been around for a while it's been it's been used for for a variety of purposes i must also say that you know i'm a civil liberties lawyer so mm-hmm. i'm not actually you know, a, a sanctions es- expert there are people who are very good at this we have looked at at uh, sanctions in in sort of limited contexts like sanctions uh, or you know export controls in particular that are around like cryptography that's a long-standing part of eff's history so some knowledge of it but uh, it's been used for lots of different purposes a couple more things before we get to the meat of this and that is until this news item hit, I'd never heard of the U.S. Office of Foreign Assets Controls, or OFAC, I guess is how you pronounce yeah, the acronym. Okay. 
And I think I'd heard something about this specially designated nationals or SDN list. Of course, the U.S. has several terrorist type lists, so maybe that's just another one. But so before we go to the, the, the meat of this, what is this office? What is What do they do? And what does it mean to be put on this SDN list? Uh, well, so OFAC, uh, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, is the enforcement agency and within the Treasury Department. So it administers and enforces uh, the various economic, you know, trade sanctions that come through law, such as this this executive order. And a violation of these sanctions has significant penalties. So, like this is the agency that that addresses that, and it's been around for 50, 60, probably seventy years. Mm long before the the uh, Obama executive order we were just discussing, but it is one of the, the agencies that, that administers that. And one of the methods by which they administer that is the special designated nationals list, which is a list of sanctioned entities, uh, you know, often uh, people that, you know, are subject to sanctions. So like, you know, uh, coming out of the Russian war against Ukraine, a number of Russians were placed on this list. And that meaning that you're not supposed to do any business with sanctioned individuals. All right. Okay. So now that we've laid all this groundwork, tell us what happened with this company or entity called Tornado Cash. Who is this organization? What do they do? And how did they draw the attention of the U.S. government? Well, so I think there's something embedded in your question, which is, you know, what is tornado cash? And, you know, this is actually, we can get into this a little bit more later, but that's one of the, you know, potentially confusing things about this, this order, because the term tornado cash could mean a lot of different things. You know, at, at some level, it is a, a an open source project that created the tornado cash software, this virtual currency mixer. It is, you know, subnames like there's Tornado Cash Classic and Tornado Cash Nova, which are two variations of that of that software. And it could also mean like, is it the group of uh, of people who were involved in, in publishing it? Is it the, uh, you know, there's a Tornado.cash website, which was listed uh, in the SDN by name. And so you say, like, what is this organization? Was that so? Uh, you know, it could be considered a the name of an entity consisting of some you know, subset of these people, but the OFAC has not been particularly clear about what it is referencing when it says tornado cash. And one of the things that really you know drew EFS attention to this is that you know one one definition at least of or tornado cash is the software is the software itself. And uh, you know this at least in a you know, traditional uh, way you would put specially designated nationals this list would be of entities of, of you know organizations or people you know, it, it, it's not strictly entities like you will find like names of ships that are uh, on this list. But, you know, on the whole, like it's going after organization. And I think one example is that prior to this, there was a, a Blender.io, which also was a mixer. But uh, as I understand it, it was a, a mixer that, that operated itself. There actually was a, a, a identifiable uh, entity involved. And uh, so when they're saying Blender.io, 
more clear that they were referring to that that entity and uh, we haven't gotten to this level of detail but uh, they were known as a custodial mixer so they took possession of the funds and then did some things and and then paid out the money while what the tornado cash software is what's called a smart contract and a, a smart contract you know, exists on the uh, in this case ethereum blockchain as, as basically a, a piece of code that you know it gets inputs it gives outputs uh, and does its thing but it doesn't require a person to operate it it just operates uh, on on its own and so you have uh this, there's like the the github page uh, we can get further into that in a little bit but the github page that had all the source code of how it worked but that wasn't like the operational thing like that that source code was informative about how it worked but the operational thing the one that actually moved coins around was a version of that code that exists on the on the blockchain what drew the u.s government to this what how did they run afoul of this executive order or the government or some other law what what drew drew their attention what was it they were doing and specifically that that caused them to be sanctioned well, I mean, according to uh, to the government, no no reason to, to think they were incorrect. They claimed that the Tornado Cash mixer was used to uh, launder some Ethereum coin, millions of dollars worth of coins, and they, they identified the Lazarus Group, which is a, a state-sponsored hacking group affiliated with the North Korea, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. And then they also were saying that uh, several uh, ransomware uh, outfits were using this to uh, to launder the funds. So they ransomware operates by uh, uh, encrypting people's computers and saying we will decrypt it if you pay us enough money, and they get paid in, in coins. But uh, you know, as we we're saying, like you can follow these these transactions, and so for ransomware to operate you know, profitably, it needs to uh, break the the connection between the ransom payment and the actual people who are are going to benefit from it. So uh, these these were the allegations of the Treasury Department. As we were looking into this, uh, there was a we looked at an analysis by an organization known as chain analysis and they were looking not just at tornado cash but at, at uh, mixers generally and according to their their study illicit addresses uh wallet addresses accounted for about 23 uh, percent of the funds sent to mixers you know it's uh, hmm. certainly not the majority but as a fairly substantial number yeah um, and that's that's what drew the ire of uh, the treasury department obviously we're not arguing that money laundering should be legal or that there's a problem there. The issue that you in particular brought up in your article was free speech. So how does that apply here? Well, what we were did a lot of focus on, so is, is this argument that uh, well-established at this point, that code is a form of speech, that by writing code, you are doing an expressive activity. And what that means is that the, uh, you know, the First Amendment applies to that code and that there is a regulation or a law that is restricting the ability to speak, then that has to go through the First Amendment analysis. It's important to note that, like that, that analysis is not the you know uh, is not the end of the story. Where you, you know, under some analysis, a regulation may be upheld, and others could be held un- unconstitutional. And in particular, we were concerned about a potential interpretation of this somewhat ambiguous order 
to mean that you could not host the the source code that github could not host the the source code so we uh, are representing professor matthew green a uh, well-known uh, cryptographer who works in this space who, who studies cryptocurrencies and what he did was uh, put up a uh, a copy of the uh, of the code on a uh, github page and we believe that uh, under the under the first amendment that both uh, uh, he has a, a right to to publish this, and GitHub has a right to to host it, despite uh, the the sanctions. Now, hopefully, OFAC is not actually interpreting that this to mean that one can't publish the code, and you know it's, it's been up there for I guess close to a to a month now. Uh, exactly what what day that it went up? Uh, maybe a little less, but uh, yeah, it remains up. Uh, so. We have at least established that uh, uh, that that is happening, and and so far, you know, the the hammer hasn't come down. And I think that, that, that's important because it, it's also a signal to to other people that like you know, where we're sort of putting it out there, there uh, you know, prominently, and to show to people that you know, not only do we believe that this is the case, but you know, here here it is happening, and uh, a canary in the uh, in the GitHub. So the reason he had to repost it because it, it was the original posting taken down from a different GitHub repository. That's right. That's right. So the the uh, you know canonical repository for the Tornado Cache code, including its its new variant Tornado Cache Nova, was removed uh, shortly after the the listing on the SDN list, and this something that that uh, github did took down uh the the uh, tornado cash github account okay so github did this of their own volition they were contact or they were contacted back to ofac and asked to remove it so i think that is a great question to ask uh github uh, <laughs> what we what we know is that the order came out and and then it was removed the the accounts of Three of the uh, more prominent contributors to that were were taken down, mm. but not everybody who contributed to it. And I think that's another important point on the, 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 the free speech aspect of it. Remember, this is open source software, right? So a lot of people will contribute. You know, they might see a, a flaw and and you know, make a, a request, a you know pull request, as it's called, for a modification to the code, or you know contribute some small piece, some large piece. Uh, and and you know any given open source project, there are many people who are involved in it, and only uh, uh, a few were you know had their their accounts uh, taken down. But note also that the 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 list, especially designated nationalists, it just listed tornado cash. It did not buy mm. any individuals as being subject to these these sanctions, which is again part of that that unclarity. All right. So since you mentioned the people, let's let's take a slight diversion. The, one of the developers of this software was recently arrested in the Netherlands. Uh, I realize this is outside the U.S. and not covered by your article, but this seems to get us at a bad precedent. I mean, is, does the EFF have a position on this or generally speaking, whether you know, you know, a programmer of any sort has legal liability for software they wrote that may have been used to commit a crime? So I, I, I think you know, you're, you're raising a good question. One of the things, of course, we, we saw the news of this this arrest, and it was obviously related to this general area, at least. It came from a, a financial regulatory entity, you know, an enforcement entity in the Netherlands. But I have yet to see any official like explanation of what the legal theory 
behind why what would cause this uh, arrest. Mm-hmm. So of course, what would be the very concerning would be that uh, if, if the theory was you wrote this code, it was later used by you know North Korea and, and ransomware for illegal activities, and therefore you're you know uh, criminally responsible for for what someone else has done. And they also have allegations that you know there was a, a greater involvement than just writing the code. Mm. You know, I, don't, I don't know what what those uh, what those are, or, if, or whether if there were such allegations, you know, there'd be question: Are they true? But the most concerning thing for um, development of innovation for the you know, for being able to express yourself through code is you don't want to have a scenario that by writing some code that is later misused you could be held criminally liable for that later misuse open source projects require people to volunteer right. their time right and if you're going to volunteer your time on something you're trying to preserve privacy you're trying to make this this you know thing Certainly, you don't want you know money laundering, ransomware to, to succeed here, but you do want to have people to have private transactions. Then, if somebody's like, "But yeah, but if somebody does use it for these things, then you're gonna you know get arrested." That really disincentivizes people from contributing to the code and, and being part of that that process. And you know, uh, if, if taken to an extreme, and hopefully it never will be, but if taken to a, to an extreme, there is a ton of code that could be used, you know, for for bad purposes later. That, that uh, uh, there's all sorts of ways to like transfer files, and that can be used for transferring, you know, illicit files, not just right. about about money. And you, know, you have the you know the dark web, and uh, you know, if your, if your software is being used to host a, a dark website you know are you responsible for the, the dark activities that occur there that would be very troubling yeah that's this this starts to have a flavor of kind of like the section 230 stuff where if you've got a platform and that platform is open to most you're a private company you can we'll get to this later where you, you can choose who's on your platform but if you are hosting something like that and and one of the people using your platform post something illegal what are your liabilities and generally at least so far with thanks to section 230 we we don't hold the platform responsible as long as once they're made aware of it they take the proper actions is it did i get that kind uh, of right i mean i think generally what 230 says is you don't hold the soapbox liable for what the speaker has said section 230 was was enacted to address an issue in the law where uh, there was a notion that if you were engaged in moderation if you would make choices editorial decisions about what stayed up and what stayed down then you became liable for what was said and if you if you did no choices if you just let everything up if you were like you know the phone company that you know whatever you say on the phone you know you're not liable as a phone company for that and this was conceived as a, being a problem as it was a disincentive to do moderation and what they wanted to do was pave a path that allowed for content moderation so that things which were lawful but nevertheless would be you know indecent uh, that was their, their concern at the time but also just you know offensive that this would enable content moderation and so if you engage in content moderation what i'm saying is you're not becoming responsible for what so it allows you to remove those things without taking their responsibility but it doesn't require 
And sort of by contrast, uh, passed right around the same time in, in, in the 90s, there's the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which does have a conditional immunity so that you, to retain the legal liability protection for copyrighted works, you do have to take action, such as taking it down, and then you can put it back up if someone's a counter notice and there's all process around. All right. So now here's what we get to do. Uh, split the fine hairs and like, you know, like free speech, like any right, it, it does have limitations. It's not unlimited. And the classic example for free speech of, is, you know, they say you can't shout fire in a crowded theater. You know, it's also said that, you know, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. And yet software can be harmful. I mean, not just to data or computers, but to humans. And, and Bruce Schneier wrote a whole book about this called Click Here to Kill Everybody. You know, malware can bring down the power grid or cause a car to crash or stop a pacemaker from working. So how do you define the shouting fire in a crowded theater line for software? Like qualitatively speaking, what sort of code speech should not or would not be protected by the First Amendment? So I think you know, this is absolutely a, a common phrase used here, the shouting fire mm-hmm. in a crowded theater. And I, I, I push back against that that phrase for a couple of reasons. One is we should take a look at it, its origins. Its origins came from Schenck versus United States, a World War One era case that was deciding whether it was okay, and it said that it wasn't okay, to have a pamphlet that was protesting the draft for World War II. And for, I think, most people's conception of, of what is allowed or not allowed in the, under the First Amendment, you wouldn't imagine that there would be, a, it would be okay to have a law that said you can't protest the draft. And, you know, we, we've dealt with that that since then. And then this was sort of an, an example that was being used at the time. Since then, in the in the 60s, there's a, a, a more modern version of this, a partially over turning shank to say that uh, uh, instead of the shank standard, which is a, whether there was a clear and present danger, the standard was whether it, the speech was designed to incite imminent lawless action. Hmm. And this is the notion that like, if you say, you know, at some vague point in the future, you should go commit a crime like that is not enough to make it uh, unlawful. Under that. So it has to be something where right here, right now, go burn down that building over there. And uh, that you know, so it has to be imminent. You have to be, uh, uh, you know, it has to be, in fact, likely to cause that. So it, it, you know, sometimes you could say like you know, it's about a riot. Like if you are inciting people to to do a riot or do specific crimes, and this is because there's a lot of like rhetorical speech that is, um, you know, uh, this thing is so terrible. We should burn this whole place down. You know, and that is yeah. know, protected speech. It is is not designed to do imminent uh, uh, lawless action. And this is also, you know, people have written, you know, books describing, you know, how you can do criminal activities. Sometimes in the context of fiction. Sometimes, you know, purportedly uh, nonfiction. There's like the Anarchist Cookbook that was very famous for a while, providing some mm-hmm. instructions on how to, you know, make uh, homemade bombs. And so the the the, the standard for something which is not protected by the by the first amendment because it is it is inspiring imminent law is it, actually quite high and hmm. this would include that if there is a, a code that could be used for for lawless uh, lawless action are you participating in that are you like giving it to someone and then you you know for their their imminent use of it for for lawless action <laughs> 
you know, another another code context. It has come up in the you know where uh, someone has crossed the line, where created a a tool and uh, for a security tool, which you know could be used for penetration testing, could be used by security researchers, or you know you could also use it to break into something. Mm-hmm. Um, and if if somebody wrote to you as the author of that code and say, hey, you know, I'm trying to you know, break into this bank to, you know, empty out the accounts. But like, I I came up with this bug. Can you, can you help me fix it? And you're like, great. You know, here, are, you know, uh, here's how to, how to fix that bug. You know, you've, you've crossed the line there because you know that they're going to be using it for illegal purposes. You're participating. You might be called conspiring with them or whatnot. But uh, if on the other hand, you know, you create a, a pen testing tool and, you know, put it out there and say, you know, security researchers use this to test it, but then somebody, does use it for illegal activity right that that shouldn't be held responsible for for creating this tool obviously in a lot of these cases too it's how you use the code that was probably the crime as opposed to the code itself right yeah and i think that's you know that's the thing and and you know another thing that we're, we're trying to get at by with our with our discussion in the, in the blog post and i think it's, it's good for your your listeners to, to understand is that uh, if something is protected by the First Amendment, what that what that means is that the the government, if they want to have a a regulation, they have to pass a, a judicial scrutiny. They you know, scrutiny. The, the court will look at the regulation and see if it uh, is acceptable or unacceptable. And there is, you know, at a high level for content speech, they have to pass strict scrutiny. For more content-neutral speech, if they're trying to regulate content-neutral, then there's what's called intermediate scrutiny. Um, so it's it's not the end of the story. And so to just uh, to flip back to the second with the sort of the problem or, or with the shouting fire in a crowded theater metaphor, is that at, at best it stands for the relatively unremarkable proposition that some speech might not pass that muster. But uh, not that any particular speech that you're talking about does or does not. And you have to like dive into this. You know, is it content based? Is it content neutral? So like the typical example of sort of a content neutral, you might have heard this phrase, time, place and manner. You know, you can go to the park and, uh, you know, have your speech. But at, you know, 10 o'clock. The park is closed, and that uh, if is if there was a regulation that you know hey, you want to do a protest after ten o'clock, that you know the court may say, well, this is content neutral. And then it doesn't matter whether you are you know protesting in favor of uh, one thing or opposed to another thing. They're not looking at the content of of what people are saying. They're just saying ten o'clock. No one can speak here because the park is closed and it's quiet hours and, you know, we're trying to make it so the residents nearby are not disturbed. So that would be like an example of a, of a content neutral regulation. And then, you know, a, a content regulation would be, you know, uh, I think that was based on what you said. So if it said that, you know, uh, you could go to the uh, park and have a rally in favor of the, uh, the current government, but if you were opposed to that government, then you you know we we, we won't issue you a permit, right? That would be obviously unconstitutional, yeah. right? Because it's based on the on the content. But of course, you know the ones that come up to cases are usually more like complex than that, and whether it is is regulating regulating content. So we go through in the uh, in, in the post here is you know to to look at some of the, these things, and that uh, one is just establishing that code is a a form of it. 
And then I think that the, the best way of looking at it is a regulation that um, prohibits writing code that has a particular function or a purpose is content-based. So, for example, one of the things that has been around for a long time since the crypto wars started in, in the 90s is that, you know, it's trying to regulate things whose function or purpose was to encrypt communications, something that the government wanted to have less of, or at least wanted to have it be available to, to the government, but maybe not to the to the uh, and so a regulation that says, well, you know, you can publish various pieces of code, but if they have the function and purpose of providing encrypted uh, communications, you, know, you can't or you can't export it. That's what we usually came up in. Then this is a, a content uh, based regulation. And so it gets that highest level of, of scrutiny, the strict scrutiny. And that means it has to be narrowly tailored. Law must be written so narrowly, using the least restrictive means to achieve their legitimate uh, purpose, and you can't put more restrictions than necessary to uh, advance that compelling uh, uh, interest. And so this comes into questions like: Does it? Uh, you know, are these real harms? And will this this regulation actually? Uh, you know, the the you know representation of, of uh, Matt Green. We're looking at you know putting the code up there, the source code on GitHub, where people can examine the code, they can download the code, they can propose modifications, they can create their own fork, they can do a bunch of things, but prohibiting that would not advance a anti-money laundering purpose. With you know, It's not the least restrictive means of doing that. It's not narrowly tailored to something that would achieve their anti-money laundering objective, but it would actually you know, prohibit both the discussion of it, Professor Green from teaching it in his, in his class, and you know, having the code out there for study, and then maybe someone trying to enhance the code to to make it so that it provides privacy, but is not useful for money laundering. Like that would be an advancement that would even help achieve some of the government's objectives. All right, so that's a perfect segue into talking about GitHub, and which is a private organization, to determine what it will and won't host on its website. And I think this is a, another common misconception with the law. For example, people claiming that their First Amendment rights are violated when they're quote-unquote deplatformed. So, you know, Twitter bans somebody and, and they, they scream about their, their First Amendment rights are being violated. They're, they're being censored. So first of all, can you explain why the First Amendment doesn't really apply in this case? And second, given this perspective, you know, why are you guys raising the free speech issue uh, in relation to the Tornado Cash and GitHub? So that, yeah, that's a very good question because I think there there are a lot of misconceptions. And just to put it out there, what does the First Amendment do? It protects you against censorship by the government. It is to protect the prospect that the government would decide what speech is acceptable, what is not, enforce that, the regulations to criminally. And uh, this was something that is, you know, I mean, the freedom of expression is recognized as a human right throughout the world. It's in the UN, you know, international uh, human rights principles. And in the United States, it is enshrined in our Bill of Rights as the First Amendment as a protection against the government. But a private entity like GitHub has its own First Amendment rights. It has its rights. And those. Uh, it is not just the, the right to publish something. But to choose what to publish, so they, you know, a, a, a website has the First Amendment right to not publish something. There actually is a whole body of case law for this sort of opposite proposition about compelled speech. That just as the government can't say based on the content like what you aren't allowed to say, 
they cannot require you to to say things. And uh, you know, this this has come up in a in a, in a variety of contexts. Right now, there's some laws that have passed prominently in in uh, Texas and Florida that have tried to regulate social media so that they can't shadow ban or deplatform or what and those are constitutionally challenging well we have you know argued that they're unconstitutional and, and i believe they are because they are compelled speech saying these sites have to host a private the private sites have to host a private party's conversation one of the more amusing cases along compelled uh, speech line was a, a case involving new hampshire the the free state uh who has the motto live free or die <laughs> and they put in their license plate and there was a case about when they could compel a citizen of the free state to say live free or die of course the answer was no <laughs> you know, you, you, know uh, you can't uh, and not just on irony but because of these first amendment principles so bring that back to the github yeah a github has the right to do content moderation on their site they don't want to host some things or they do want to host other things but what we were saying is we're bringing up the first amendment rights is that we think that that uh, matt green has the has the right against the government to to host it and that github also has a right against the government its first amendment right is to host it. now it may choose not to i like for them to to choose to do so but the reason we're bringing up the first amendment in this context is because the takedowns occurred right after some government action right so there is a at least a implicit danger uh, of government action as we were pointing out this is a very vague order it's unclear whether that's actually what was the government intended but it creates a chilling effect a chilling effect of whether you you know you could host this code so we wanted to to signal that it is something that we believe based on the analysis uh, and that github has the right to do of course they still have to choose to do so as we're winding down here there's there's one more aspect of this that and whenever you start talking about some of these legal aspects i think maybe probably a layman would think they're all arcane but <laughs> What I find really interesting legal aspect about this is that the code itself, if and maybe I misunderstood this, but for the way I read this from your article, maybe somewhere else, is that the code itself is kind of embedded in the blockchain record. Like it's it's kind of already published in, a, in a, such a way that the way blockchain works is everyone basically has a copy of this ledger, this digital ledger. So it's it's effectively everywhere. It would be impossible at this point to remove from existence. And that made me think, as I was reading that, about two other cases from history that that I thought were just classic cases of this. And one was there was a, a guy who figured out back in the day how to decrypt supposedly encrypted or, uh, you know, DRM'd digital rights management and affected DVDs, making them copy proof. And the, the, the copy protection, I think, was called CSS. So he created this thing called DCESS. And there were issues around him publishing this. And I think what it, and he basically published the code on a t shirt and somehow worked around the copyright issue that way, kind of in the same way that Phil Zimmerman, the guy who created PGP back in the day, published the code for PGP, which the government was trying to squelch, as a book. Uh, so are these legal loopholes? Are these sort of tactics legitimate? What, what is your take on some of these things? I'm curious as a, as a lawyer, uh, how you feel about this kind of working around some of these laws uh, to get things published. I mean, I, I believe that that code is protected in the form of code. But I think what some of these you know, people have tried to do, and you know, it was a T-shirt. There was like a, a haiku that that had. That's right. That uh, actually for for Tornado Cash, somebody made a YouTube video where they were uh, singing the code and you know, coming along. <laughs> 
And I think what these are really just ways of, of like illustrating sort of the the speech aspects of it is that that this the same information, you know, can be done in more traditional obviously acknowledge aspects of speech because while i think again, the courts have established this since the 90 that the code is, is a form of, of speech and it's protected by the by the first amendment it's much more obvious to people that a song would be or a poem or a you know t-shirt that that they're they're taking the code and re-expressing it in a form that is more obvious to a layperson is something that would be uh, speech protected. And in, in some sense, it is saying like, well, if you're going to go after it in the form of code, you also have to go after my poem, my music, my you know T-shirt, my uh, interpretive dance that is expressing this. So that sort of crystallizes the, the issues. But from like a legal point of view, the, the thing that we're, we've, we've established is that code in and of itself is is expressive and this mostly comes in the form of, of you know a lot of the cases are talking about source code but you know source code becomes compiled code but compiled code is is a version of that source code and it has this functionality and so it is still protected as compiled code is just that you're now looking at the functionality when doing that scrutiny analysis we were just talking about so what's next here for Tornado Cash and their source code? Uh, will EFF be doing anything further at this point if nothing else happens? And maybe this issue in general, where do you see this this kind of going from here? Well, so one thing that we have, we have done is we've also reached out to the uh, OFAC, the Office of uh, Foreign Asset control to uh, try and start a conversation with them to get some more clarity about what they are meaning by that. That so far has not borne uh, fruit. We have heard back from them. We haven't had a substantive uh, conversation yet. So we'll see if that is that is helpful because I think they could do a lot to help reassure some people that it's not as broad as it could be and, and narrow this down and trying to, to uh, make it have less unintended consequences or collateral damage here. So that would be ongoing and hopefully they would issue something to clarify. In addition, I just uh, was seeing, this came out yesterday, you may have seen this, but uh, there was a, a group of people who have filed a, a lawsuit to to assert their rights. They, they raise a number of issues. I, I've just had a brief chance to look over uh, what, what's going on there, and so I need to look at it uh, much more, more deeply to get a good view, but I, it is my understanding that uh, they, they are raising, amongst other things, that uh, they, they want to have the right to you know, uh, work on the code and modify and uh, uh, so they are raising some of these issues that, that we care deeply about. And there's a lot of other issues that, that are uh, involved here, certainly like, you know, one of the ones we were talking about earlier, financial privacy, you know, how this fits in with money laundering regulations. And there's a number of great organizations who are really like, in-depth about that, who are who are hitting on the issues where uh, EFF strength is is in working for, for decades on these code is speech First Amendment issues. So that's probably where our focus will be moving forward. And so uh, we'll take a look at that case. There may be other cases that that, that come about to, to challenge this. And then as I was saying, like, you know, trying to get some more more clarity and remove some of the ambiguity that was was created by the vaguely worded or ambiguously worded uh, designation on the, on the list. One of the concerns that, that we have as well is that that ambiguity may not be a mistake. It may mm. be 
or trying to uh, have it be uh, sort of ambiguous to give them more room later to you know do things and uh, using you know uh, they might say well we'll use our discretion to only go after people who are really doing bad things but we don't want to you know cut off that that option uh which I, I can understand, but this creates that those sort of chilling effects. You know that that something might maybe lawful, maybe constitutionally protected, may not, you know, uh, cause any bad things, might be chilled and you know to to, to drill down on. Them. But if you're in a situation where there are you know, uh, uh, you know years in, in in prison, huge fines, uh, you know that are, there could be the penalties involved, but you might say, well, it's like a really good chance that I would win if this came to a court case. Ninety five percent of the time, you know. I, estimate i would win but like a one in 20 chance of like going to jail would still chill somebody right it doesn't have to be a weak case or something to have a a, a chill people can be chilled even if they have a really good legal argument uh, so that's why i think it's very important to to get that clarity and at least find out if they are trying to do it ambiguously or not and, and one of the things i also just wanted to, to touch on on this is sort of mentioning that there were two versions of the tornado cash grabbers and nova was that was the new one it was introduced in december of, of last year and uh is in a, in a beta and as part of that beta there's a limitation of using one ethereum coin maximum one ethereum coin is worth several thousand dollars i haven't you know it moves a lot so i'm not sure exactly what <laughs> But like it is with that kind of limitation, it is a very poor tool to do the, the millions of dollar scale money laundering that, that uh, people are trying to do. And, you know, that, that is still listed in, in the SDN. And, you know, you might at least like, is that something that is really going to be a tool for these these bad acts? And maybe to to expand on that a little bit. I mean, one thing to note is that. Uh, Doing the mixer is is not uh, you you can you can do it wrong you can you can use a mixer and fail to keep yourself anonymous like for example uh, you know especially given the sort of relatively high values of some of these coins the amount of coin that equals your your X dollars is like a coin plus a decimal point and plus a lot of numbers after the decimal point like it, it's pretty specific and so if you put in you know, 50.7823048861 coins into it and then somebody takes out exactly that number and all those decimal points later you know it's not too hard to put the pieces together and if you have to do a lot of sort of small transactions and and such that uh, are doing this it can also make it difficult to to not screw it up along the way, which you know uh, would mean that uh, you know with with this limitation for a lot of the transactions that one might care about for for other purposes for like having a, a private transaction would be like lower than that amount, but it still wouldn't be super useful for for money. Taking a moment, like, so why do we care about the uh, uh, sort of the financial privacy? Well, one reason is that, you know, not just for the, the privacy itself, but like you might be buying something that is part of your expressive activities that will be revealing about your you know, donated to a political organization or a political campaign that uh, or you are you're purchasing a book or, a, you know, a subscription to a magazine that says something about what you're trying to read. That is also part of your like First Amendment right to do. And honestly, in a lot of those kinds of, of transactions 
are going to be relatively small dollar uh, transactions. So, um, you know, I, I am at least curious as to what their what their problem was with the Nova software, at least as it was limited at the time of putting the um, sanctions. Well, thank you so much for being out there and parsing these these fine things for us and fighting for the fighting for our rights. It's I am a monthly contributor to you guys. You guys have been around. You just I think you just celebrated your 30th anniversary. So I, I'd encourage people to to go to EFF.org, look around, sign up for newsletters, send them some money if you can. You guys are doing some wonderful work. And Kurt, thank you so much for coming on the show and explaining this very arcane uh, notion of uh, crypto mixing. All right. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So there you have it. I, I I did warn you we were going to get into some get into the weeds a little bit with legal stuff, but I think it was all still interesting to know and understand how this stuff works in the context of this current story about Tornado Cash. And I also thought it was interesting just to kind of dig a little deeper into why cryptocurrency isn't as anonymous as a lot of people think it is, and that there are some interesting solutions that will help make it much more anonymous. And, but of course, bad guys can use that same tool to hide their tracks. All right. So next week we'll be back on schedule with a news show and we'll be back on our alternating news slash interviews uh, going forward from here. Next week, I'll be talking with Jordan Wines. He's a cybersecurity expert. And we're going to talk a little bit about how hackers hone their skills and why this is something that you might actually have a fun time dabbling with yourself. I've also got a great interview with Doug Levin coming up. He is an expert on cybersecurity and privacy for K through 12. That is kindergarten through 12th grade here in the United States. Not just the schools themselves, which is definitely an issue because there have been ransomware attacks on school systems as recently as a couple of weeks ago, but also for the students themselves the, with COVID in particular and at home proctoring of tests, students' privacy rights have really been trampled. So that'll be a really interesting discussion. I don't think that aspect of security and privacy gets talked about enough. So I'm really looking forward to you hearing that interview with Doug coming up soon too. And I've got several other interviews in the, in the pipeline. So lots of great stuff coming up, including the big 300th episode just 10 weeks away. Stay tuned for some information about the mailbag feature. I'll be asked, probably starting to ask for those next week, answering your questions here on the air and even giving you the chance to send me an audio file so you can ask the question yourself. I'll be having a promotion coming up soon for the 300th episode. Stay tuned. Lots of great goodness coming up. All right. Thanks, everybody. Take care out there. And as always, stay safe and don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs>